is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. If you've got a church Bible, it's on page 1209, 1209, Hebrews 11. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He could not be found, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. <clears throat> By faith, nor, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith... Even Sarah, <clears throat> who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity return. Instead, they were longing 
for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. May God bless this reading from his holy word. second reading is going to be a collection of readings from Ecclesiastes in three parts. First one, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. What has will be, will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they will depart. They take nothing from their toil, and they can carry nothing, sorry, that they can carry in their hands. Then I saw all that God had done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit, God, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. End of the reading. That you would speak to us, Father, through your word, that it may be a gift to us that sustains us in all the chances and changes and uncertainties of this life. Open our ears to hear what you would say today and strengthen our will that we may be more determined to follow you for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the Bible tells us about progress. It's kind of woven through progress, uh, through the Bible. At creation, God blessed them, told them to be fruitful, increase in number, and multiply in the making of his covenants, his agreements with humanity, God uh, made to Abraham and told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and people as numerous as the sand on the shore. And then when you get to the end, in the book of Revelation, God declares that he will dwell with them and walk with them. They will be, he will be their God and they will be his people, in the place of perfection and holiness. 
and we live for that truth, drawing us into the future. That sense of progress that was known about because we knew God. And that's what, of course, that great reading from chapter 11 in Hebrews is telling us, that here are people who looked to the future and they saw that God would fulfill their hopes and their dreams. They knew God well enough to know that he could be trusted. It was all focusing the future on God as we progressed in him. But then, beginning with the philosopher uh, René Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am. The focus shifted from being about the one who is known about the focus shifted from the one known about to the one who knows. Now, it's a seismic shift in philosophical thinking. It changed the world. There I think, therefore I am. And actually, it's kind of affected us too. Interesting how we sang that song. You're a good, good father... And I'm loved because that's who I am. And no mention of we in the song at all. How interesting that so many of our songs in our day are me and my Jesus, my Saviour. Anyway, that's an aside. So the one who knew became more important than the one who was known. Progress, therefore, seemed no longer to come from outside, from God. Progress becomes from within, from what we can do. And that kind of thinking led, first of all, to industrial progress, where the notion of work as the fulfilment and salvation of humanity were, became ingrained. The economic progress, where as we got wealthier, we were being saved. Uh, consumerist technology that we thought about last week, uh, sorry, consumerist progress, where, which we thought about last week, that uh, spoke of how what we have was our worth and defining who we are. And then eventually on to technological progress. And so much of our lives in our day is entrusted to technology, our financial well-being entrusted to the computers that do the dealing on the stock market. Automatically, the transactions are being made, responding to movements. Our safety in various forms of transport uh, is, uh, is given over to the computers. The navigation systems in aeroplanes, for example, the engine management systems in my beautiful car, railway signals, traffic uh, lights on the road, air traffic control, all given over to technology. Our health entrusted to technology that can detect and diagnose my symptoms, log my treatments, prompt the letters that call me in to see the doctor again. And I only have to go in and sit in the consulting room and get a glimpse of that screen and see how much red has come up as they look on my file to know, to know something needs tweaking 
in my medication. It's all there. And living with this technology shapes our thinking. How we think about ourselves and how we think about the future. So the great icon of our age is the selfie. It's no accident that the selfie comes at times such as this. With all that philosophy that is shaping our minds and the technology that puts us right at the centre of the technological manifestations. It's iconic. I click, therefore I am. In regards to the future, it creates a hope that entrusts the future to machines, wonderfully, uh, wonderfully revealed to us and symbolised in this Toy Story film where the three-eyed creatures are all sitting there in their container looking up to the claw, which they hope will come down and choose one of them and lift them up to a better world and a new life. Better than the one we share down here. It's very prophetic, that particular uh, joke, I suppose, in the film. And so we hope that technology will solve our global warming circumstances, even though we know that our technology is causing uh, global warming in the first place. And, and the artificial intelligence debate that's going on on our radios and televisions at the moment. And, and the big question, will machines take over the world? Well, let me tell you, they already have. A machine doesn't need to be intelligent to take over the world. It just needs to be Desirable. The car has already taken over the world. We rearrange our towns and villages in order that it may go around as conveniently as possible. Two, two things have happened in our community to show how it stirs us up. We want to be able to park it on the grass. And so the council have put bollards around to prevent it. And it's created a hiatus on the Facebook about how dreadful a thing when we can't park where we want to park. And of course, please, please, don't stop us driving down the Baddow Road. Even if the reason for it is to reduce the pollution that's affecting the people who are living there. See, the thing about technology is that it's not neutral. It's not neutral, it's ambiguous. It, it can be used for great good, but it will produce an equal amount of bad. Just as much evil as good comes from our technology. And if we trust for our salvation in technological progress, our future will have the same ambiguity. We will be saved and lost in equal measure. There will be good things, but just as much evil. 
And salvation, true salvation, will be as far away as ever. And so now in today's world, of course, it's becoming more and more fractured because there are so many different ideas of where our technology should take us and what direction we should be going in. So in thinking about our future in this technological age, we need some wisdom. And the ancient book of Ecclesiastes, it's a book where the writer is searching, wrestling between ambiguity and hope. Where is the meaning in this meaningless world? And in these selected verses, we may note three things that are worth remembering that may help us to be able to be people who deal wisely with our technology. Firstly, remember the enduring nature of the earth and what happens in it. The first set of readings said, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it started. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything new of which anyone can say, look, this is something new? Well, it appears to us in our technological fast-moving age that there's so much that is new. It's all being invented so quick that what we buy off the shelves is out of date before we've got it home. It's true. Somebody somewhere has got something better than you, even this, if it's sold to you as the cutting edge. So we might want to say, yes, there's so much new. Everything is changing and being renewed, but actually we are just finding different ways of doing the same thing. Different ways of communicating with each other. Different ways of traveling over the earth. Different ways of entertaining ourselves or providing for our survival needs. We're just doing what people have always done. But we are doing it in a different and maybe faster way. That's part of the wider context of the history of the earth. We've always found different ways of doing these things. But the earth has always been here. The sun has always come up and always come up in the east. Day after day. And each day it has set in the west. The earth was here long before we were and it will be here long after we are gone. It should teach us something about humility. We didn't create the earth, and nor do we control its destiny. And it's in fact a bit of an arrogance to think that we could control its destiny. Because the purposes of creation are far beyond our ability to understand. And if the future of our, of our created world lies somewhere else, with someone else, 
And if we're humble to acknowledge, humble enough to acknowledge that truth, then to look to the one who does hold the earth's future is a first step in our wisdom. Second thing to remember is the ignorance of humanity, or at least the limitation of our knowledge. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. And as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Well, you could imagine that being written by someone who lived 2,000 or more years ago. You could imagine that because there was no scientific inquiry. They lived much more at the mercy of the changes of the world. And so we might want to say in our day, well, we do understand. Since this was written, we have discovered so much more. We've got knowledge that is huge. But actually, the knowledge we've gained only makes us more acutely aware of the greatness of our ignorance. Because every discovery we make opens up a whole field of ignorance we never knew was there before. There are actually three questions that the scientists will agree can't be answered. And the first one is, why is there anything here? Why is there a creation? Because, you see, the difference between something not existing and something existing is kind of beyond our comprehension. And it was referred to, of course, uh, in our uh, Hebrews 11 uh, verses that spoke of the things visible being made not from things visible. They came out of nowhere, as it were. And it's not easy to explain why there is a creation. We, we know, because they've told us, that creation began with a big bang. Great. So those who propose that theory have now been working on what happened before the big bang. And a few years ago, they published their findings. And this is it. Before the big bang was a series of little bangs. So now you know. That's where we came from. It's an unanswerable question why anything is here. The second question is why is what exists alive? Because the, the difference between something being inert and something being alive is as great as something not existing or it existing. So when El Albert Einstein was asked, did he believe in God? He said, there has to be something behind the energy. Robert Lenzer, who according to the Times magazine is one of the hundred most influential people in the world, 
said the answer to life can't be found through looking through a microscope or inspecting spiral galaxies. We just don't know why the universe is alive. And the third question is why is the universe self-aware, i.e. why are you and I conscious, sentient beings with an awareness of ourselves and each other and our creation? Because the gap between not being conscious and being conscious is as big as the gap between the other two unanswerable questions. So Stephen Weinberg, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1979, wrote a book called Dreams of uh, the Final Theory. And he said in that book that there's a problem with consciousness because despite the power of physical theory, i.e. the study of everything that is, consciousness doesn't seem derivable from physical laws. And the problem is sometimes we don't know where our knowledge ends. We don't know what we don't know. But if we acknowledge our ignorance before God, we'll not lose our dependence on him who does know. And then thirdly, In Ecclesiastes, in those verses we had, there's the faithfulness of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does this so that men will revere him, remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the picture picture is shattered and the spring of the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who made it. See, God is where we find a secure future. God who created life and triumphed over death. That's what we remember at our communion table today. The future of today's world is splintered, it's fragmented. But Christians have a story which overarches all of history. We know where we're going. It carries us, this story, from beginning to what happens at the end. And so we don't need to be afraid of the future. We always have good news to share with people, whoever they are, wherever they are. You see, we have to come to terms with the fact that the silver cord of life will be severed. And we're very conscious of that since Christmas, having lost suddenly three members of our congregation. The golden bowl is going to be broken. No amount of technology will prevent us from dying. And we can't save ourselves by any amount of technology. Christian faith does not see, in the natural order of things, a world that is progressing. It sees the world that is given over to decay. But God has acted 
to save us. He's provided the way through death into eternity. He's remembered us. He remembered us before the silver cord is severed. And if we remember him, then what he has done will endure in us forever. We will live forever in Christ who died and was raised. We shall live in him. See, technology changes our world, sometimes for good, sometimes for evil. But God saves us through Christ Jesus. And the key to it is in this whole biblical view is repentance. Christians don't look for progress in the world. We look for progress from light, death to life, from darkness to light, from fear to security, from illness to wholeness, from condemnation to acceptance, from guilt to innocence, from loneliness to community. We look for progress in these ways. It's about progress in responding to the love and grace of Jesus Christ. So that kind of repentance remembers that the earth was here before us and will be here after us. It means living humbly with our technology, not using it in a selfish manner. That kind of repentance considers whether the journey in our car is really necessary before adding to the emissions that pollute our world in our streets and around the planet. And if the journey is necessary, it doesn't use the mobile phone whilst we're doing it to endanger me and you. That kind of repentance digs an allotment to cut down on food miles that kind of repentance learns the gift of waiting for something that's worthwhile. And secondly, that kind of repentance remembers our ignorance in what we can do. The truth is we're always going to be dependent on God. And God has made us to be dependent on each other. The kingdom of God is amongst people, not machines. So perhaps the best way to use the technology that we've got in our pockets is to use them to draw us together, not as a means of having not, having not to meet, if you see what I mean. I don't have to meet with you because I can just send a text. Unless I send a text saying, meet me, meet me, Paul. Arrange the meeting, yes. Don't use it to avoid the meeting. Thirdly, that kind of repentance remembers that whatever the future brings, God endures forever. It's often said, isn't it, in Christian circles, uh, that if Jesus was here, he would use the televangelist. He would use the internet to get his message out. Lots of people have said that to me, and I'm not so sure. Because God didn't give Jesus in a technological age. He gave him in the most untechnological way. In the blood of childbirth and the gore and barbarism of crucifixion. 
He shows us what true humanity is like in relationship with each other. The way to be saved in an ambiguous world is not to rely on ambiguous technology. It's found in relationship with Jesus and through him to be in relationship with each other. Our progress is measured by how well we do that. Amen.